All right. Well, welcome everybody. Glad you're here. And we are kicking off a six-week block of instruction on the Old Testament, which is about two-thirds of our Bible, but uh, is often neglected and is often very intimidating to many Christians and has some difficult things to, to wrap our minds around. But our goal uh, is to over the course of, there's somebody raising her hand, uh, Claire Davis is right here. Our goal over the course of this next six weeks is to become more familiar with the Old Testament so that we can engage God's Word better. Before we do that, though, Greg and Lori Wood are here, and let's keep praying for Greg and Lori. As you know, if you weren't here Sunday or maybe you were in kids' ministry, Greg and Lori on Friday night lost their house in a fire, and it uh, to, total loss of the house. They're doing great. They've got a place to stay. They're going to rebuild. Just any, just a quick update. How are you doing, Greg? Just a word or two. You guys tired? We need to pray for them, and, um, and maybe before they leave tonight, just give them a hug and let them know how you might encourage them and bless them. Um, and then uh, one other thing I want to mention before we get into tonight is as we eat dinner over the course of the next six weeks and we gather, we have name tags, one of the purposes of, of these midweek fellowships is just that fellowship. It's not just to learn something about the Word, which of course is primary and central and we want to do, but it's to also get to know one another. And so I encourage you to, when you eat, uh, come and sit with some people you don't know, or before you leave this room tonight, just just endeavor to to meet somebody that you don't know and you got a name tag on it to, to make that easy, so... Um, uh, I encourage you to do that. Okay, let me tell you what the schedule is for these next six weeks. Today, or tonight, we're going to look at uh, an overview of the entire Old Testament, its structure and message. So we're going to kind of take a 30,000-foot flyover of the whole Old Testament, and I want to give you some handlebars to grab onto as you're navigating your way through the Old Testament. And then weeks two through six, we're going to kind of dive down into particular sections. So the next slide will tell you. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the Pentateuch, which is a, a, a word, Pentateuch, just means the five scrolls. It's the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So we're going to dig into those and really look at kind of the message and the, uh, the, uh, the theme, Some draw out some major themes in Genesis through Deuteronomy. Look at covenant, law, exodus, atonement, wandering in the wilderness, and how that applies to our Christian life. The third week, we're going to look at the history books, which then is Joshua through Ezra. Oftentimes, Genesis is, and through Deuteronomy is lumped in the history books as well, but we're going to look after the Pentateuch, picking up with the rest of the history books, Joshua through Ezra, looking at conquest. We're going to wrestle with that very difficult question of of why God would command his people to, uh, to, errat- to uh, just wipe off, out their enemies and, and kill them all. Uh, we're going to handle that. I'm sure maybe some of you that have, been, have witnessed to an unbelieving friend have been, have been questioned about God's command to really kill uh, his enemies, the, the enemies of his people. We're going to look at the kings, and that'll be particularly encouraging as we're in the middle of what seems to be a very discouraging political race in our country. Uh, we are going to get a little bit of um, uh, chronological perspective, and we're going to realize that God's people have been under the rule of much worse, and yet God is faithful. 
going to look at exile. Then we're going to look at the prophets, probably one of the most difficult portions of the whole Bible to wrap our minds around. We're going to look at the message of the prophets, what their, what their purpose is. That's Isaiah through Malachi. Then we'll look at the wisdom literature, uh, which is uh, five books in the middle of the Old Testament, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And then we'll wrap it up in the last session with kind of drawing out major themes and threads of the Old Testament. I'm really excited about this. I hope it will help enrich our understanding of, of the Bible. And to rightly understand the New Testament, you need to have a grounding in the Old Testament. And so I want us to become more familiar with uh, just theology and the Bible in general. This is what Martin Luther, the great reformer, said about the Bible. He said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. And I pray that after these six weeks, the Bible would lay hold on us in a, in a greater way. So with that, let me pray, and then we're going to jump into to our outline. Father, thank you for your grace to us in, in uh, giving us a new day. And with that day, as one of your prophets says, uh, Jeremiah, in Lamentations chapter 3, that your mercies with each new day are new every morning. Great is your steadfast love. We thank you for waking us up, giving us life and breath in Christ. We thank you for bringing us here tonight to think deeply about your word and your ways and your holiness and, and redemptive history and how you have, uh, you have been superintending human history to your uh, sovereign providential goal of your glory in your Son. So I pray that we would learn some things, but I pray that we would be encouraged. And as we are anxious people in an anxious time, I pray that you'd give us perspective and that it would put steel in our spines over these next six weeks. With that, Lord, we, we do pray for our nation, for the political process. For We pray for our, our current president, uh, President Obama. We pray that you'd bless him and give him wisdom as he uh, carries out his final year in office. We pray for his protection and for grace to him. We do pray that you'd change his mind on uh, some very serious issues that are dear to us as Bible-believing Christians. But short of that, God, we know that even uh, uh, evil decisions that he may be a part of, you are able to work for your good. In fact, that is exactly what you do, and we will see evidence of that as we go through the Old Testament. We pray for both parties and the nominees for both parties. Uh, we pray that uh, your will would be done. We know that it will be, and we are adding our prayers. That you work out your will through the prayer of your people. So, Lord, we pray for righteousness to be exalted in our nation, and we pray for your grace to us. And now as we turn our attention to your word, help us, Lord, to see beautiful things from your word and make us more like Jesus before we leave this place tonight as a result of our time in your word and as a result of your Holy Spirit coming alongside your word to transform us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're just going to work through the outline there. Roman numeral number one there. Before we can look at the Old Testament, we need to put on New Testament goggles to look at the Old Testament. We want to read the Old Testament in light of the new and praise God that we live when we do, that God made us alive now to have this perspective. So to read the Old Testament with New Testament eyes, uh, I want us to look real briefly at what Jesus says about the Old Testament and what he says, and I would say that Jesus is probably 
Not probably. He is definitely the best Old Testament scholar, right? Because he, he wrote it. He, the Word of God, he, you know, the Trinity wrote the Bible, so he knows a little something about the Old Testament. And this is what Jesus says about the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 24, this is post-resurrection, and Jesus is walking on the road to, um, uh, he, he joins these disciples that are walking on the road to Emmaus, saddles up next to them, kind of uh, prevents them from understanding uh, who he is, who, what his identity is. He's asking them what's happening, and they're talking about this Jesus of Nazareth who's done these great things, and that uh, they were followers of his, and some of the women that were part of their band are reporting now that his tomb is empty and that he's risen, and they're kind of doubting and sort of discouraged and not really knowing what to do, and they're just kind of on their way back to Emmaus. And then in verse 25, uh, listen to what Jesus says in response to them. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses, now that means the Pentateuch, because Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. So, Jesus, so Luke is saying, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's a shorthand way of saying the whole Old Testament, the first five books and the whole Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So of course the New Testament had not been written yet, right? And Jesus is saying that the Old Testament is all about him, right? Then you can read John chapter 5. We won't take the time where Jesus is chastising the religious leaders of the day. And he's saying that you look in God's word, which is from the Father in heaven, and you think that in this word you will find uh, the words of life, but it, is, it testifies about me. So Jesus is saying that the Old Testament, the Bible, is about me. And then listen to what Paul writes to a young pastor named Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, verses 14 through 17. And remember, at this time, although Paul was writing letters, the New Testament had not yet been formed. Uh, It's still in production, so to speak, as the apostles are writing the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you, Paul speaking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, meaning scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul's perspective on the Old Testament is not that it's some scary stories and maybe some moralistic tales on how to do better. He says that the Old Testament is about Jesus to make you wise for salvation in Christ. And then he goes on to say, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, of course, we know that I think that applies to what then becomes the New Testament, but it's important for us to note that at this time, Paul is speaking about the Old Testament scriptures, that they are about Jesus and that they lead God's people to salvation in Christ. So, As we read the Old Testament, as we study it, as we think about it over these next six weeks, we're going to be careful to read the Old Testament in view of the new with Christ-centered goggles on, so to speak. Um, One of the errors that people make oftentimes is they detach the Old Testament from the New Testament, and they think that the Old Testament 
is some stories about God's dealings with his people, and they are basically stories about how God kind of wants his people to act. And they, I think, unwittingly and unwisely detach the Old Testament from the New Testament. And what ends up happening when you do that is you begin to uh, fall prey to reading the Old Testament very moralistically, right? So you've heard me, uh, I'm sure, say this example uh, occasionally about, an example would be the story of David and Goliath. You maybe were taught David and Goliath as a child in Sunday school or, you know, Awanas or whatever, which can be wonderful things to do, but maybe not, uh, maybe your teacher didn't have a a particularly Jesus-centered view of the Bible. And they taught David and Goliath as a sort of story to you know, encourage you to be more courageous, to reach down deep inside and, you know, be strong and courageous in the face of your enemies. You know, you're David and you're facing a Goliath and if you will just pick out five smooth stones and loosen up that shoulder and aim good and try hard and face your enemies, Johnny, you can be like David. In fact, when I was in college, um, we had a little cadet quartet and we had a one-song career, and we sang a song called uh, the, the, something about David, the Bible. Know, anyway, we were not invited to sing again after we sang that one song, and it was a moralistic view of David and Goliath. It was basically kind of reach down deep inside, be courageous, and slay your giants. But when you put Jesus-centered goggles on, you realize that the story of David and Goliath is about Christ. David is a shadow of the true and better warrior king who is Jesus. And David represents a a shadow of Jesus. Goliath is sin and the enemy. And we aren't like David. We are like Israel with our tails between our legs, defeated by sin, hiding in the woods, waiting for a warrior king to come deliver us from the tyranny of Goliath. And the story, the, the, the moral of the story is, is that we need a warrior king to fight and slay our, battle, our, our giants for us. And when we trust in him, we can be in his victory, right? So see how that makes all the difference in the world uh, when we read the Bible with Jesus-centered lenses on. So with that, let's go to uh, number two there on our outline, the structure of the Old Testament. So go ahead and flip open to your table of contents. You've probably been around when we've done this before, but it's worth review. There are 30, 66 books in your Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. So for the next six weeks, we're just concerned about the Old Testament. And look at the table of contents, and you'll see that your Old Testament is arranged. The books of the Old Testament are arranged in a particular order. I want you to think in terms of 17, 5, and 17 that you see there on uh, point number 2. The first 17 books of the Old Testament are the history books. And that includes the first five books. Sometimes the first five books are called the Pentateuch, which means the five scrolls. Or sometimes it's called the Law because it includes the Law, although it's not just all Law. Sometimes it's called the Torah, which uh, just means teaching. Um, but the, those five books, along with the next 12, are, are basically historical narrative. 
They are a story, 17 books. So Genesis through, um, through Esther. Then the next five books are uh, what are sometimes called the wisdom literature or the poetical books. And though that is uh, pro- uh, Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of, Sol- Song of Solomon, and Job. Those five books are not furthering the story along. They're five books that are grouped together because they're a particular genre of literature, either songs or Proverbs or, 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 or wisdom literature, that speak about human experience during the whole course of the storyline of the Old Testament, okay? So it's not moving. So these 39 books of the Old Testament are not, it's not like it begins in Genesis and it ends in Malachi kind of chronologically. That's basically what's happening in the first 17 books, the history. Then you have these five books that are the wisdom literature. And then the next 17 books, which is Isaiah through Malachi, are the prophets, Now, what's important for you to understand is these prophets are doing their work, they're receiving their word from God and speaking to God's people during the time along the history from Genesis through Esther, okay? Does that make sense? So these, all these 17 prophets that are at the second half of your Old Testament aren't furthering the story along chronologically. They're prophets that are just grouped together for the organization of your Bible and they are all fitting somewhere along that timeline from Genesis to Esther. Actually, really from about 2 Kings on. Okay, So they're kind of towards the end of the Old Testament. So do you see that? History, uh, 17 books. Wisdom, literature, 5 books. Prophet, 17. So if you've been thinking, wow, I want to kind of know the story of God's dealing with his people, but 39 books, I don't know if I could read all the way through. If you just read the first 17 books of the Bible, that's just story. It's historical narrative. It's not crazy, apocalyptic, difficult, prophetic literature. It's really just story. Uh, some of it, admittedly, is a little dry and maybe has some genealogies and some, you know, some, some sacrificial system things in Leviticus. I'm not saying it's you know, the most riveting thing you've ever read, but it's easy to, uh, you can understand it. And the whole history of the Old Testament, from creation until 400 years B.C., when when it goes silent until Jesus comes, is in those first 17 books of the Old Testament. That might make just approaching the story of the Old Testament a little bit more, uh, a little bit more you know, it, it seems like a, a mountain not so high that you have to climb to do that. So let's do this. You see that little line there, and we're going to draw, um, we're just going to kind of draw this out so you can see it. So on this line is basically just the history of the Old Testament, okay? So there's 17 books, so I'm not going to space these out to 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Oh, well, let's put another one in here somewhere. 15. How many? Did I, oh, I lost count. What? I just need one more? Two more? Okay. All right, I'll see what we get. So we start off with Genesis, okay? And then we got Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay? So that's the first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the Pentateuch, the Torah, or the Law. And then after Deuteronomy, you have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 
And then after Ruth, you have, uh, you have what is that, First and Second Samuel? First Samuel, Second Samuel, First uh, Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. And then I'm going to need a couple more in here. Then you have um, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Did I miss any? Okay. So that is the whole history. This is creation, obviously, to about 400 years B.C. Okay? Now here's what you need to know about, about then the rest of the Old Testament is it all fits in along this timeline, these people. So the, the poetical books, Job, for example, Job, we don't really know when Job was written. Job is kind of like a thought bubble that is just a, it's not furthering the story along. It's just like a little blip on the screen where it's just the story of one man who obviously goes through incredible suffering and it is the story of God dealing with one man and showing God's sovereignty and really ordination of all suffering. And, and it's a picture for us of human. And that, we think it probably happened all the way back here, kind of during the time of Abraham. So Job is, is probably around here somewhere. Um, the the uh, Psalms are, are during the time of, of David, First and Second Samuel. So this is probably Psalms in here, or definitely Psalms in here. Proverbs primarily written by David's uh, son Solomon. So the Proverbs are around in here. He also wrote Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. So that's where the, the wisdom books are fitting in. And then the prof- prophet books, the prophetic books, which we're going to look at in a little bit more detail here, for Isaiah through Malachi are all fitting in Right around in here. These are the prophets. So we're looking at Isaiah through Malachi are right in, in here. And there's going to be, and we're going to look about this in a second, there's really three different categories of prophets. There's the pre-exile prophets, the exile prophets, and the post-exile prophets. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But let me pause and see if there are any, any questions or anything. Anybody need me to slow down or speed up or, uh, you know, do jumping jacks or anything? Anybody got any questions? Pretty straightforward so far? What's that? Right bigger. Okay, yeah, right bigger. Are we, do, I thought we were going to have the, we're not going to have the, we're, the, I thought you were going to put the video on the, so you could show it. Up on the screen, maybe that might help a little bit. Sorry, Brandon. Just put you on the spot there. Paul's moving back to help us. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Okay, okay. So then, let's look now at the prophets. Okay, we're going to zoom in on the prophets. Okay. So let me draw what you got on your, um, what you have on your sheet there, and we're going to make sense of this in just a second. Okay, so uh, let me just kind of summarize before we get into the prophets, and we're going to do more of this this week, so if you're like, oh gosh, you just, you just totally lost me there, we're going to repeat this again and again for these six weeks. Let me just summarize Genesis through about 1 Kings, okay? So God creates everything, 
uh, and out of nothing, creates the world, sets humanity in the garden, Adam and Eve, they fall, and God separates them from his presence, and we see humanity begin to spread in its sinfulness, and early on, we see the flood, and then early on in Genesis, as we see, Genesis, we see God choosing for himself, uh, beginning to create a people through one man, Abraham. And Abraham is going to be a central figure next week when we look at the Pentateuch. So God uh, is, has a plan of salvation to redeem a people for himself uh, through this nation that he's going to create through one man, named Abraham. And the rest of Genesis is the story of Abraham's family, the patriarchs, Abraham uh, uh, and, his, and his sons, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And at the end of Genesis, we see uh, God's family, the people of God, Israel as a nation, being uh, in Egypt because of a famine. And it, it starts out well for them because Joseph, this Great-grandson of Abraham is in charge, and he's the prince, but he eventually dies, and they go from being VIPs to slaves, and now they are in slavery in Egypt, and that's what Exodus is all about. But God raises up a deliverer named Moses, and Moses delivers his people from Egyptian captivity, which is towards the beginning of Exodus, and then after God delivers his people from Egyptian captivity, which is, which is a picture of salvation, right? It's, it's not just a miraculous story. It's a kind of picture of how God saves anybody. God rescues Israel from Egypt. He causes them to pass through the Red Sea, and then he brings them to Mount Sinai, where after he has rescued them, he gives them his law, the Ten Commandments, and then the law. So that's what happens in the beginning of Exodus. And then they begin to uh, just to wander in the wilderness and to disobey God. Leviticus is a book that's just more law about sacrifices. And we're going we're gonna to get deep into why God would be so... Um, so so uh, detailed about sacrifices because Leviticus is about God displaying his holiness and how his people uh, can and cannot approach him. Numbers is about God's people wandering in the wilderness in the promised land. So again, we're talking about this family that becomes a nation that goes into captivity, that's rescued, that's given God's law. And then God says, I'm going to bring you back into the land that I promised to Abraham, but they wander in disobedience in the wilderness. And then that generation that was disobedient dies in the desert, and they're at the edge of the promised land, and that's what Deuteronomy is. And the word Deuteronomy just means the second giving of the law. So all these old people that disobeyed God, the first generation uh, at Mount Sinai, they're they're dying off, and their children are now about to take the promised land. They're about ready to, uh, to enter into the promised land, and God is giving them the law again. So Deuteronomy is just basically a recapitulation. It's a restatement of God's law to this new generation before they go into the promised land, which Moses dies, and then Joshua takes them into the promised land across the Jordan River. And now they're in the promised land, but there's a whole bunch of foreigners there and a bunch of pagan, idolatrous people that are worshiping false gods. And so they have to kill off these people. And that's a picture of 
sanctification and fighting sin. God has his people. He saved them. He's given them his law. And now he has them where he wants them, but they have to do the hard work of killing off sin and idolatry. Much like the Christian life, right? So that's Joshua. Judges is a time of great wickedness where God's people are ruled by wicked people, even though God has given them his law, even though he has commanded them to fight sin. People are just debased and there's just much debauchery going on. Ruth is a kind of singular story that doesn't move the, 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 the timeline along, but it's a story of redemption. And then we get into the kings, okay? And that's where we are here, okay? So here's the story. God's people uh, growing. They're in captivity, rescuing, law, wilderness, back into the promised land. They're in a horrible situation, terrible rulers, and now they want a king, and God gives them a king. And the first king that he gives them is, is Saul. And Saul is uh, not a good king. And uh, then God raises up David. And David is a great king, but obviously he's a flawed king. And then David dies, and uh, David's son Solomon is now on the throne. He's a very wise man and in a lot of ways a good king, but he also has many, many faults. And Solomon dies, and now is a, it's a very crucial time. We're about right here. We're, we're, we're right in here, uh, right about in 1 Kings chapter 12. Solomon, the third king of God's people, dies, and his son, a man named Rehoboam, takes over. And this is about... 9, I think it's around 930 or so B.C. Rehoboam takes over, and Rehoboam is a knucklehead. Rehoboam, when he assumes power, the leaders of Israel come to him and they say, Hey, Rehoboam, King Rehoboam, your dad was, was for the most part, a good man and a good ruler, but he was a little harsh. We were wondering if you could just kind of lighten up on some stuff a little bit. The old sage guys in Israel came to Rehoboam and they said, now's the opportunity, come on, do some, make some reforms, ease up on the people, treat them a little bit better than your dad did. Rehoboam says, well, give me a little time to think about it. Rehoboam goes and hangs out with his kind of young buddies and his young buddies say, no, 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 no. Put the screws on these bad boys. Who do they think they are? You're the king now. You realize I'm paraphrasing, right? And Rehoboam comes back to the to the, you know, the, the sage, sages of Israel and says, uh-uh-uh, I'm, I'm the king now. We're going to do it my way. So a young, foolish leader. And because of Rehoboam's f- uh, foolishness, the kingdom splits, and now it's divided. And so you have the northern kingdom, which is Israel, and you have the southern kingdom, which is Judah. And the kingdom is divided now. You have ten tribes to the north and two tribes in the south. Most of the focus, most of it is kind of really on Judah in the south. Not exclusively, but a lot of the rest of the Old Testament is is about Judah in the south, okay? So this is happening about right here, um, around 1 Kings Chapter 12, when the kingdom divides, okay? Now we're going to start getting into the prophets. So the kingdom is divided. God's people are scattered. They are without good leadership. 
And when we talk about the kings in a couple weeks when we get into it, we're, we're going to be, well, it's, it's going to encourage us because we're going to realize that God doesn't leave his people even when it seems that he's given them over to complete lunacy for leadership, right? And we might just have something going on that might be applicable in our country today, right? Okay, so, so, so we're going to be encouraged by that. The kingdom splits, and God then starts to raise up prophets to warn them about turning from their sin, and if they don't turn from their sin, he is going to judge them. And the way he's going to judge them is he's going to cause enemies to come and carry them off. So now we have these prophets that come along, and these prophets are pre-exilic or pre-exile prophets. They're coming along with voices of warning, saying, turn from your sin. If you don't turn from your sin, God will punish you. Okay? So these are pre-exile prophets. Pre-exile now, the two, uh, the two prophets to the northern tribes that God gives is Amos and Hosea, okay? And they come, and their ministry is to the ten northern tribes uh, of Israel. And then to the pre-exile prophets to the southern kingdom is a bunch of the, the big ones, Joel and Isaiah, um, Micah. Um, I used to know an acronym, Jim's Zephaniah, um, Jim's, what was that acronym I had memorized, Jim's uh, Habakkuk, um, and uh, Jeremiah, I may be missing one, let me look here, yeah, that's it, so Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah the majority of their message is to the southern kingdom and they are pre-exile. They, again, are, are, are functioning much like Amos and Hosea to the northern kingdom saying, repent, repent, repent. Judgment is coming. Well, God's people don't repent. And in uh, 722 B.C., the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom and carry them away and carry the northern, ten northern tribes to captivity. And really, those ten tribes at that point become kind of, kind of lost. They're, they're, they're sort of, you know, they, they really leave the, 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 the storyline to a large degree in the Old Testament. Then, about 150 years later, and I think it's 586 B.C., the Babylonians... come and capture Judah, the southern kingdom. And this is the much of the, the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, which dominates a lot of the Old Testament, right? And so now you have these, exile, these prophets that are pre-exile saying, repent, repent, repent. God's people don't repent. The judgment that these prophets promised comes to both tribes. And then you have the prophets, there's, there's a couple prophets that are raised up during the time of exile, and really it's a time of lament. God's people are in captivity, and this is, 
This is um, Daniel. Daniel, he's in captivity in Babylon, right? And then uh, Lamentations. Lamentations is written by Jeremiah, and it's just a lament. It's basically crying out, God, look at where we are. There's a whole Bible book dedicated to lament. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, lamenting over the fact that God's people who were promised to be God's people in God's land have been so rebellious that now they're captive again to sin. And then also Ezekiel is um, a prophet who was taken away into captivity in um, Babylon as well. And he is writing in exile. Now what happens during this time, and we're right around in, in here, during this time of uh, pre-exile and then exile, God raises up some of these prophets. In fact, all the way back, Isaiah had said that the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to crush you. Well, that happens. But, God, but Isaiah also said, but God's not going to be done with you yet. He's going to raise up another kingdom to come crush the Babylonians and loose you from the Babylonians' hands. And then that kingdom's actually going to allow you to go back and rebuild the temple. So God raises up the Persian Empire. And the Persians conquer the Babylonians. And now God's people are controlled by the Persians. And the Persians are wicked people too. But God raises up a couple Persian kings to be sympathetic and gracious to God's people and allow God's people to go back to return to Israel and to start to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the wall. And that's what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are about. So now the Persians have come. I think this is, I don't know, 530-something. Let's just say 535. That's just approximate. The Persian, uh, he's, he's in power now, and Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel go to this Persian emperor, and they ask him if they can go back, and he lets them. In fact, he funds it, right? So he, they go back, and they begin to build. And then there are several prophets that come along after God's, a, a, a large portion, not everybody, but a large portion of God's people have returned to the promised land and are rebuilding the city. And that's, um, that's Haggai, um, Zephaniah, um, I'm sorry, Zechariah, Zechariah. And there's one more, who is that? Uh, Malachi, Malachi. And these prophets are basically just encourage or sin Keep working, like don't give up, keep building, keep building, keep building, right? That's what their message is. Stay on the wall, don't give up, work hard, spend your money on God's work, not on yourself. And these are, those, those are considered post-exile prophets. Now there's three prophets um, that don't really fit in this scheme, um, and they are Jonah, Obadiah, and Nahum. And really, those three prophets are dealing with the Ninevites and the Assyrians, and they're speaking kind of a word of judgment against uh, the Assyrians that, um, that, that sacked the northern kingdom. So you've got Obadiah kind of, um, I don't know, just kind of over here, Obadiah, Jonah, 
and Nahum. And I'm not saying they're unimportant. I'm just saying they don't really, they don't really fit into this, what's going on here. And this, these are wonderful books about God's judgment against his enemies. And also, Jonah is this great missionary tale about um, you know, God raising up his people to go and witness to uh, wicked people. So those, those are very important books, very important prophets. They just kind of don't fit in this major thrust of the storyline of God's people. Um, and, then, and then it goes silent. God's people are back in the land, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the wall. And by the way, this is, this is Ezra and Nehemiah here doing this work. And then Esther, this last book of the Old Testament, is um, it's about the Jews that are still back in Persia that haven't gone back to the, pro- to the Holy Land to rebuild. So you've got a, a thousands of Jewish people going back to uh, the Promised Land to rebuild the temple, but thousands of them stayed back in Persia. And what's happening to them? And that's the story of Esther, this young Jewish girl who raises up to be the queen of Persia. And, you know, we know the story. She, because of her, um, her being in, in such a time as this, at the, at, in the right place at the right time, um, she causes God's people to be spared. So that's what's happening. And that's the end of the Old Testament. Now, I realize that may be like, you're like, whoa, just, okay, whoa, uh, uh, thanks, Brad. That, you thoroughly confused me. But any questions? <laughs> yes, Greg. Who'd I miss? <laughs> Thank you, Greg. You're right. You're right. He, he's, he's, he, he doesn't come. You're right. He is an Old Testament prophet, but he doesn't come until... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Okay, so here's what I want you... I, but do you see? I want you to see the story, okay? So when you're reading... Because I think for most of us, the... the the intimidating part of the, I want you, here, here's what I want you, I want you to, I want to break this down for you. I want you to see Genesis through Esther as one long story, okay, of creation, fall, God raising up a family, and then the dealing of this family falling into captivity, but God rescuing them from captivity, giving them his law. And them still being disobedient to him, wandering in the desert. Isn't that the story of every Christian? Wandering, even after we're saved. God opens our eyes to his law. We still wander. He, com- he commands us to make war against our sin. We don't do it perfectly. We find ourselves still entangled by sin. He gives us king. He gives us, you know, he gives us leaders. They're imperfect, right? And we, we kind of are, we end our life waiting for final and full redemption, which is where Israel is at the end here. So the Old Testament is the story of Israel, but is really the story of the Christian life, right? So that's, the, that's Genesis through Esther. And then you can look at these prophets and you can say, okay, these prophets, look, there's so much in these books that are difficult to understand, but I know... Okay, if, I think my, what might be helpful for you is to take all of these prophets and just write down, you know, on the first page, when you're, Joel, pre-exile. 
or Amos, pre-exile, or, you know, right at the top of the first page of Daniel, exile, Lamentations, exile. And then you're writing Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. You're writing post-exile. And that will just orient you to the, the tenor and the thrust of what's going on in that book. So there's a big difference between the message of Haggai and Isaiah. Isaiah and Micah and Zephaniah, these are warnings mixed with consolation and comfort, but mostly warning, whereas Haggai is kind of like, hey, get off your rear and stay with the work. So do you understand? And then Daniel and Lamentations and Ezekiel are, 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 are about life in exile. In fact, Daniel, my community group is just working through Daniel. Daniel would be a wonderful book for American Christians to read because it's about life in Babylon. And America is not the new Jerusalem. America is the new Babylon. And this is just, it's wonderfully comforting to see God bearing with his people in the midst of a wicked culture. So you, you kind of get a feel for kind of what these different books, what their thrust is. And, and, and if nothing else, you just have a, 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 something to hold on to when you're, reading, when you're reading the book. Any questions at all? Yes, Colin. Are there dangers associated with a Christocentric view of the Old Testament? Yeah, I think you can overdo it. I think that you can... Um, I mean, certainly I, w- I want to commend that as being the general way that we need to view all of Scripture and the Old Testament. But I think that people can get a little... Like, um, like in the Old Testament, there's types. There's like shadows and types of Christ, right? So David is a type of Christ, Right? He's a shadow of Christ. And Moses is a shadow of Christ. And you know, the prophets are a shadow of the true prophet to come Jesus. But we can get a little happy. We can, get, we can overdo it you know, and just almost over-spiritualize every little thing in the Old Testament. So I think that a potential danger would be is you know, overdoing it. And then also uh, a danger would be is as we read the Bible, Old Testament Christocentrically, we also realize that there's just commands in the Old Testament that we just need to heed, right? I mean, there's, so we don't just say, oh, it's all grace, it's all grace. Thank God God fulfilled this for me in Christ, and so I don't have to obey this. No, I mean, we still have to feel the force of that imperative. So those would say, just off the top of my mind, those would be two um, potential pitfalls to, to you know, overdoing a Christocentric uh, reading of the Scripture. But I, I don't think many of us are in danger of that. I think a lot of us probably have to sort of detox ourselves from a moralistic reading of the scripture. Um, but yeah. Does that answer your question? Kind of? Yeah. Good question. Anybody else? Yeah. Give him the mic so I can bear. Yeah. A follow on. What, what's the value of author's intent, like the man, the man author intent of the OT and Original meaning, original intent. I think it's extremely valuable. In fact, I think that is the, um, that's the main, that's the first goal of every good student of the Bible is to understand the author's intent, to understand the context, to understand the situation, and then what is, what is the Holy Spirit, what has he inspired this particular person to write? 
What's his intent? What's the message? The author's intent. So when we say author's intent, we're not saying that Moses had a separate intent from the Holy Spirit. We are assuming the God-breathedness of all Scripture. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, um, the, uh, the Apostle Peter writes, and Robert and I, we, when we did this Scripture conference in India, we read these verses over and over and over and over again to the people, so, and we're very familiar with uh, these. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, um, uh, he, Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So this is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter uses the word prophecy there, but historically the church has understood that to be a comment on the inspiration of Scripture and how Scripture was brought about. So God is using, uh, through the course of centuries, 40 different men, um, in different situations, kings and, and fishermen and people from all different walks of life to write Scripture. And we are believing, I think because of what that verse says, is that the Holy Spirit is inspiring Moses and Paul and Luke and uh, you know, Jeremiah to write exactly what he intends to write. So when we say that the author's intent is what is most important in a text. Don't think that we're looking at what a man says. We're looking at what the Holy Spirit is saying, is intending that author to say. And that is exactly what we want to try and get out of the text. What is the Holy Spirit saying through that person to God's people? That's the author's intent. And I think that's just that's the that's ground zero of 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 understanding the Bible. Does that make sense, Anna? Does that help? Any anybody have any You've got to do a lot of work to do that, right? So you can't just plop down into 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14 where God is speaking a particular word to Israel and say, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent of their sins, I will heal their land. We can't take that necessarily as a promise to America. Now there's some principles that we can apply to that from that. But we get, see, that's where we got to be careful, where we have to, have to, okay, God is speaking to a particular people in a particular time, in a particular situation. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray and that God won't bless. I'm not saying there aren't principles. But do you understand that? that we, kinda, we can't take that and extract that and say, God now is bound to bless us if we elect a Christian, Right? Uh, will it go better for us? Well, most certainly. But that's where we have to be careful. We have to understand the context, the situation, what's the author dealing with his people, what's the Holy Spirit saying through there, and then what is the, the timelessness uh, for God's people through, through that, that particular uh, writing. So, oh, there's so much more we can say about that. But, but that's just inductive Bible study. Like that, that's what that is. That's just, you know, that's, that's just observing, understanding, um, the facts and, you know, applying it. So good question, but I could talk forever about that and hope I didn't lose you on that. And friends, that's why, that's, why, that's why we preach through the Bible. That's why we do expositional preaching and we don't just sort of parachute down into text, you know, and just kind of, you know, 
do a jump down into a text and look at it like it's an isolated thing. We want to work through books of the Bible because then you're, you're going to get more familiar with the context of what's going on. And you're going to understand the situation and what the author's dealing with. You're going to understand what Paul is dealing with when he's talking to the Corinthians um, and the, you know, the idol worship that's going on in the church. Um, and you're going to understand his intent as the Holy Spirit's leading him. Good question. Anything else? Going once, going twice. Okay, we're not going to cover the back sheet, but you can look at the back and you can see um, that the message of the Old Testament, I was really proud of myself, uh, came up with an alliterated little thing there, a particular people, a passion for holiness, a promised Savior. Um, Actually, those weren't mine. I ripped that off from Mark Dever, but it sounded good and I was kind of happy about it. Um, But we will actually cover all of that in the coming weeks. But just let me jump down to four. We'll end with this, just two more minutes. Tips for reading the Old Testament. I want to encourage you to read through whole books. I'm I'm a big advocate of of Bible reading plans. One downside, I think, to Bible reading plans is that if you're doing doing just little pieces of the Old Testament, um, like one chapter, and you're kind of going back and forth, sometimes it can get, at least me, maybe you guys guys aren't, you, you guys are like, you're able to focus longer. But like when I read the Old Testament in that way, sometimes I kind of lose the storyline a little bit. Am I the only one? Stokes is not in his head. So we, at least two of us are not very intelligent. The rest of these people are, more, are, are better than we are. But um, I, I find that reading the Old Testament, I like to use Bible reading plans for the New Testament. It's just easier to read. And then in the Old Testament, I kind of like to develop my own little plan, and I like to just read through whole books, not in one setting necessarily, but say, okay, for the month of you know, March, I'm going to read through Isaiah and maybe map out a plan for that. And then I'd encourage you to read large sections or several chapters in one setting with releasing yourself excuse me, from the goal of understanding everything you're reading. Just approach the Old Testament like a baby approaches learning English. The more they're exposed to it, the more literate they'll be, Right? Um, and so just kind of expose yourself to it. You don't understand every word, you just expose yourself to it. I mean, then read knowing where you are on the timeline. I think it's just helpful if you're reading Isaiah to understand that he's offering a message of warning, comfort amidst the warning, but warning if you don't turn. Daniel is in exile. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are post-exile and just kind of understanding where you are and what the thrust of the message may be. And then there's a typo there, not read with Christocentrically, but we've talked about this, as Colin's question has pointed us to, read Christocentrically. Read the Old Testament, especially some of these stories in the narrative. Read them realizing that they are all in some way pointing to Jesus, right? They're not just, uh, so they're not just you know, moral stories about how we should try harder. Okay, I think that's it. 7.35, let me pray. And um, next week, we are going to dive into Genesis through Deuteronomy. And we're going to look at some of the major themes in here and uh, what's going on with all these sacrifices, what's going on with the law, what are covenants about, why do people have to get circumcised when they're 90? Uh, you know, what, what is Israel? Who are the people of God? Um, you know, we're going to look at some of those things and, and, and it's going to be hopefully interesting. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these friends and I pray that this has been somewhat helpful tonight. I pray that if nothing else, we would just have a few, uh, a few 
just things we can grab onto as we climb up the mountain of the Old Testament. A few, a few uh, handlebars to, that protrude out from the side that we can get leverage on and, and pull ourselves up a little bit further so that we can uh, know you more and we can see more of Christ in the Old Testament. And it would encourage us and deepen our faith. And thank you for these friends. Pray for uh, a safe trip home tonight and that you'd wake us up tomorrow morning uh, ready to obey and do your will and, and bring glory to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.